What we would like to do today as kind of a mid-month special is present parts of a sermon, most of the first part of a sermon, a sermon entitled, These That the World Has Turned Upside Down. This sermon was preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, called the Prince of Preachers by most that know his work. This was preached on May 9th, 1858, and it was preached from the New Park Street pulpit. So I have a guest that's going to read these portions of the sermon, so enjoy. The World Turned Upside Down, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Acts 17.6 This is just an old version of an oft-repeated story. When disturbances arise in a state and rebellions and mutinies cause blood to be shed, it is still custom to cry. The Christians have done this. In the days of Jesus, we know it was laid to the charge of our blessed and divine master that he was a stirrer of sedition. Whereas he himself had refused to be king when his followers would have taken him by force to make him one. For he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Yet was he crucified under the two false charges of sedition and blasphemy. The same thing occurred when the apostles, wherever they went to preach the gospel, the Jews who opposed them sought to stir up the refuse of the city to put an end to their ministry. And then when a great tumult had been made by the Jews themselves, who had taken unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all in the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring him out to the people, then the Jews laid the tumult and the uproar at the door of the apostles, saying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. This plan was followed all through the Roman Empire until Christianity became the state religion. There was never a calamity befell Rome, never a war arose, never a famine or plague, but the vulgar multitude cried, The Christians to the lions, the Christians have done this. Nero himself imputed the burning of Rome, of which he himself was doubtless the incendiary, to the Christians. The believers in Jesus were slandered as if they were the common sewer into which all the filth of sin was to be poured, whereas they were like Solomon's great brazen sea, which was full of the purest water, wherein even priests themselves might wash their robes. And you will remark that to this day the world still lays its ills at the door of the Christians. Was it not the foolish cry a few months ago? And are there not some weak-minded individuals who still believe it? that the great massacre and mutiny in India was caused by the missionaries? Forsooth, the men who turned the world upside down had gone there also. And because men broke through all the restraints of nature and law and committed deeds for which fiends might blush, this must be laid at the door of Christ's holy gospel, and the men of peace must bear on their shoulders the blame of war. Ah, we need not refute this. The calumny is too idle to need a refutation. Can it be true that he whose gospel is love should be the fomenter of disturbance? Can it be fair for a moment to lay mutiny and rebellion at the door of the gospel, the very motto of which is peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Did not our master say, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's? Did he not himself pay tribute, though he sent to the fish of the sea to get the shekel? And have not his followers at all times been a peaceful generation? 
save only and except where the liberty of their conscience was touched, and when they were not the men to bow their knee to tyrants and kings. But with brave old Oliver did they bind their king in chains and their nobles in fetters of iron, as they will do again, if their liberty should ever be so infringed, so that they should not have the power to worship God as they ought. We believe that what these Jews said of the apostles was just a downright willful lie. They knew better. The apostles were not the disturber of states. It is true they preached that which would disturb the sinful constitution of a kingdom which would disturb the evil practices of false priests, but they never meant to set men in an uproar. They did come to set men at arms with sin. They did draw the sword against iniquity, but against men as men, against kings as kings, they had no battle. It is with iniquity and sin and wrong everywhere that they proclaimed an everlasting warfare. But still, brethren, there is many a true word spoken in jest, we say, and surely there is many a true word spoken in malice. They say the apostles turned the world upside down. They meant by that that they were great disturbers of the peace. But they said a great true thing, for Christ's gospel does turn the world upside down. It was the wrong way upward before, and now that the gospel is preached, and when it shall prevail, it will set the world right by turning it upside down. And now I shall try to show how, in the world at large, Christ's gospel turns the world upside down. And then I shall endeavor, as well as God shall help me, to show how the little world that is within every man is turned upside down when he becomes a believer in the gospel of Christ. First, then, the gospel of Christ turns the world upside down with regard to the position of different classes of men. In the esteem of men, the kingdom of heaven is something like this. High there on the summit, there sits the most grand rabbi, the right venerable, estimable, and excellent doctor of divinity, the great philosopher, the highly learned, the deeply instructed, the immensely intellectual man. He sits on the apex. He is the highest because he is the wisest. And just below him, there is a class of men who are deeply studied, not quite so skilled as the former, but still exceedingly wise, who look down at those who stand at the basement of the pyramid and who say to them, Ah, they are the ignoble multitude. They know nothing at all. A little lower down, we come to the sober, respectable thinking men, not those who set up for teachers, but those who seldom will be taught because they already, in their own opinion, know all that is to be learned. Then after them, there come a still larger number of very estimable folks who are exceeding wise in worldly wisdom, although not quite so exalted as the philosopher and the rabbi. Lower still come those who have just a respectable amount of wisdom and knowledge. And then at the very basement, there come the fool and the little child and the babe. When we look at these, we say, this is the wisdom of this world. Behold how great a difference there is between the babe at the bottom and the learned doctor on the summit. How wide the distinction between the ignorant simpleton who forms the hard, rocky, stubborn basement and the wise man of polished marble who there stands resplendent at the apex of the pyramid. Now just see how Christ turns the world upside down. There it stands. He just reverses it. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye can in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Not many are great men after the flesh. Not many mighty men are chosen, but God hath chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, 
It is just turning the whole social fabric upside down, and the wise man finds now that he has to go upwards towards his simplicity. He has been all his life trying as far as he could to get away from the simplicity of the credulous child. He has been thinking and judging and weighing and bringing his logic to cut up every truth he heard, and now he has to begin and go back up again. He has to become a little child and turn back to his former simplicity. This is the world turned upside down with a vengeance, and therefore the wise seldom love it. If you wish to see the world turned upside down to perfection, just turn to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Here you have a whole summary of the world reversed. Jesus Christ turned the world upside down the first sermon he preached. Look at the third verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we like a man who has an ambitious spirit, a man who, as we say, knows how to push his way in the world, who looks up, is not contented with the position that he occupies, but is always for climbing higher and higher. And we have a very fair opinion, too, of a man who has a very fair opinion of himself, a man who is not going to bow and cringe. He will have his rights, that he will. He will not give way to anybody. He believes himself to be somewhat, and he will stand on his own belief, and he will prove it to the world yet. He is not one of your poor, mean-spirited fellows who are content with poverty and sit still. He will not be contented. Now such a man as this the world admires. But Christ just turns that upside down and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The men who have no strength of their own, but look for all to Christ. The men who have no spirit to run with a wicked world, but who would rather suffer an injury than resent one. The men who are lowly and of a humble carriage, who seek not to lift their heads above their fellows, who, if they be great, have greatness thrust upon them, but never seek it, who are content along the cool, sequestered veil of life to keep the even tenor of their way, who seem to always have a ringing in their ears. Seekest thou great things for yourself? Seek them not. The poor in spirit, happy in their poverty, who are content with the Lord's providence, and think themselves far more rich than they deserve to be. Now these men, Christ says, are blessed. The world says they are soft, they are fools, but Christ puts those on top whom the world puts at the bottom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then there is another lot of people in the world. They are always mourning. They do not let you see it often, for their master has told them when they fast to anoint their face, that they appear not to fast unto men, but still secretly before God they have to groan. They hang their harps upon the willows. They mourn for their own sins, and then they mourn for the sin of the times. The world says of these, they are a moping melancholy set. I would not care to belong to their number. And the gay reveler comes in, and he almost spits upon them in his scorn. For what are they? They love the darkness. They are the willows of the stream. But this man, like the proud poplar, lifts his head and is swayed to and fro in the wind of his joy, boasting of his greatness and his freedom. Hear how the gay youth talks to his mourning friend, who is under conviction of sin. Ah, yours is a morbid disposition. I pity you. You ought to be under the hand of a physician. You go mourning through this world. What a miserable thing to be plunging through waves of tribulation. What a dismal case is yours. I would not stand in your shoes and be in your position for all the world. 
No, but Christ turns the world upside down. And so those people whom you think to be mournful and sorrowful are the very ones who are to rejoice. For read the fourth verse. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Yes, worldling, your joy is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. It blazeth a little and maketh a great noise. It is soon done with. But light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. You cannot see the light now because it is sown. It lies under the clods of poverty and shame and persecution mayhap. But when the great harvest day shall come, the blades of light up starting at the second coming shall bring forth the full corn in the air of bliss and glory everlasting. O ye mourning souls, be glad, for whereas the world puts you beneath it, Christ puts you above the world's head. When he turns the world upside down, he says you shall be comforted. Then there is another race of people called the meek. You may have met with them now and then. Let me describe the opposite. I know a man who never feels happy unless he has a lawsuit. He would never pay a bill unless he had a writ about it. He is fond of law. The idea of pulling another up before the court is a great delicacy to him. A slight affront he would not easily forget. He has a very large amount of meek dignity, and if he be never so slightly touched, if a harsh word be spoken against him or one slander uttered, he is down upon his enemy at once, for he is a man of a hard temper, and he casts the debtor into prison. And verily I say unto thee, if thou gettest in there by his writ, thou shalt never come out until thou hast paid to the uttermost farthing. Now the meek are of a very different disposition. You may revile them, but they will not revile again. You may injure them, but they know that their master has said, I say unto thee, resist not evil. They do not put themselves into airs and passions on a slight affront, for they know that all men are imperfect. And therefore, they think that perhaps their brother made a mistake and did not wish to hurt their feelings. And therefore they say, Well, if he did not wish to do it, then I will not be hurt by it. I dare say he meant well, and therefore I will take the will for the deed, and though he spoke harshly, yet he will be sorry for it tomorrow. I will not mention it to him. I will put up with whatever he chooses to say. There is a slander uttered against him. He says, Well, let it alone. It will die of itself. Where no wood is, the fire goeth out. Another speaketh exceedingly ill against him in his hearing, but he just holds his tongue. He is dumb and openeth not his mouth. He is not like the sons of Zerah, who said to David, Let us go and take off that dead dog's head, because he cursed the king. He says, No, if the Lord hath bidden him curse, let him curse. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He is quite content to bear and forbear, and put up with a thousand injuries rather than inflict one. Meekly and quietly he goes his way through the world, and people say, Ah, such a man as that will never get on. He will always be taken in. Why, he will be lending money and will never get it back again. He will be giving his substance to the poor, and he will never receive it. How stupid he is. He allows the people to infringe on his rights. He has no strength of mind. He does not know how to stand up for himself, fool that he is. Aye, but Christ turns it upside down, and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Is that not provoking to you graspers, you high-spirited people, you lawyers, you that are always trying to bring your neighbors into trouble touching your rights? You do it in order that you might inherit the earth. See how Christ spites you and treads your wisdom under his feet. 
He says, the meek shall inherit the earth. After all, very often, the best way to get our rights is to let them alone. I am quite certain that the safest way to defend your character is never to say a word about it. If every person in this place chooses to slander me and utter the most furious libels that he pleases, he may rest quite assured that he will never have a lawsuit from me. I am not quite fool enough for that. I have always noticed that when a man defends himself in a court of law against any slander, he just does his enemy's business with his own hand. Our enemies cannot hurt us unless we hurt ourselves. No man's character was ever really injured except by himself. Be you among the meek, and you shall inherit the earth. Bear all things, hope all things, believe all things, and it shall be best, even on this earth in the end. Do you see that very respectable gentleman yonder, who has never omitted to attend his church or his chapel, twice every Sunday, ever since he became a man? He reads his Bible, too, and he has family prayers. It is true that there are certain stories flying about, that he is rather hard upon his laborers and exacting at times in his payments, but does justice to all men, although no further will he go. This man is on very good terms with himself. When he gets up in the morning, he always shakes hands with himself and compliments himself on being a very excellent person. He generally lives in a front street, in his opinion, and the first number in the street, too. If you speak to him about his state before God, he says that if he does not go to heaven, nobody will, for he pays 20 shillings in the pound to everybody. He is strictly upright, and there is no one who can find any fault with his character. Isn't he a good man? Don't you envy him? A man who has so excellent an opinion of himself that he thinks himself perfect. Or if he is not quite perfect, yet he is so good that he believes that with a little help he shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Well now, do you see standing back at the church there a poor woman with tears running down her eyes? Come forward, ma'am. Let us hear your history. She is afraid to come forward. She dares not speak in the presence of respectable persons, but we gather thus much from her. She has lately found out that she is full of sin, and she desires to know what she must do to be saved. Ask her. She tells you she has no merits of her own. Her song is, I the chief of sinners am, oh that mercy would save me. She never compliments herself on her good works, for she says she has none. All her righteousness are as filthy rags. She puts her mouth in the very dust when she prays, and she dares not lift so much as her eyes toward heaven. You pity that poor woman. You would not be like her case. The other man whom I have just mentioned stands at the very top of the ladder, does he not? But this poor woman stands at the bottom. Now just see the gospel process, the world turned upside down. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. While the man who is content with himself has this for his portion, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, publicans and harlots enter into the kingdom of heaven before you, because you seek not the righteousness which is of faith, but you seek it as if it were by works of the law. So here you see again is the world turned upside down in the first sermon Christ ever preached. Now turn to the next beatitude. In the seventh verse, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Of this I have already spoken. The merciful are not much respected in this world, at least if they are imprudently merciful. 
The man who forgives too much or is too generous is not to be considered wise. But Christ declares that he who has been merciful, merciful to supply the wants of the poor, merciful to forgive his enemies and to pass by offenses shall obtain mercy. Here again is the world turned upside down. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The world says, blessed is the man who indulges in a gay life. If you ask the common run of mankind who is the happy man, they will tell you, the happy man is he who has abundance of money and spends it freely and is freed from restraint, who leads a merry dance of life, who drinks deep the cup of intoxication, who revels riotously, who like the wild horse of the prairie is not bitted by order or restrained by reason, but who dashes across the broad plains of sin, unharnessed, unguided, unrestrained. This is the man whom the world calls happy, the proud man, the mighty man, the nimrod, the man who can do just as he wishes and who spurns to keep the narrow way of holiness. Now the scripture says not so. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And now look at the ninth verse. What a turning of the world upside down that is. You walk through London and who are the men that we put upon our columns and pillars and upon our park gates and so on. Read the ninth verse and see how that turns the world upside down. There upon the very top of the world, high, high up, can be seen the armless sleeve of a Nelson. There he stands, high exalted above his fellows. And there in another place, with a long file up his back, stands a duke. And in another place, riding upon a war horse, is a mighty man of war. These are the world's blessed heroes." Go into the capital of what empire you choose to select, and you shall see that the blessed men who are put upon pedestals and who have statues erected to their memory, who are put into our St. Paul's Cathedral and our Westminster Abbey, are not exactly the men mentioned in the ninth verse. Let us read it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Here is the world turned upside down. The warrior with his garment stained in blood is put into the ignoble earth to die and rot. But the peacemaker is lifted up, and God's crown of blessing is put round about his head. And men one day shall see it, and struck with admiration they shall lament their own folly, that they exalted the blood-red sword of the warrior, but that they did rend the modest mantle of the noon who did make peace among mankind. And to conclude our Savior's sermon, notice once more that we find in this world a race of persons who have always been hated, a class of men who have been hunted like the wild goat, persecuted, afflicted, and tormented. As an old divine says, the Christian has been looked upon as if he had a wolf's head, for as the wolf was hunted for his head everywhere, so has the Christian been hunted to the uttermost ends of the earth. And in reading history, we are apt to say, these persecuted persons occupy the lowest room of blessedness. These who have been sawn asunder, who have been burned, who have seen their houses destroyed, and have been driven as houseless exiles into every part of the earth. These men who have wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, these are the very least of mankind. Not so. The gospel reverses all this, and it says, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I repeat it, the whole of these beatitudes are just in conflict with the world's opinion. And we may quote the words of the Jew and say, Jesus Christ was the man who turned the world upside down. Well, again, we hope it was uplifting to hear 
portions of this sermon. We selected specific portions. Actually, we did most of uh, the first portion of this sermon entitled, The World Turned Upside Down. The sermon is rather lengthy and full. So in the show notes, we will give you a couple links so you can click on those and and, uh, see the the sermon completely in text if you want to continue to to read. just want to encourage you, um, again, this is a sermon that was preached in 1858, and there have been preachers throughout history, uh, way back beyond Charles Spurgeon, that have preached incredible sermons. I felt like this sermon, The World Turned Upside Down, was incredibly applicable for what we're going through today in our world. And if you're listening to this at a different time and maybe things aren't crazy in the world outside, there's always things that are going on in our lives, the lives of our friends and family, and it may feel as though the world is turned upside down. And to hear uh, Charles Spurgeon, Prince, Prince of Preachers, um, take this phrase and ter- literally turn this phrase around and refer to the men who turned the world upside down as being the followers of Jesus and talks about how Jesus was the one who turned the world upside down. And that's something that's interesting and important for us to know, that when the world around us is just seems absolutely chaotic and out of control, there is a Savior, there is a man, there is a God-man named Jesus, the Son of God, who through his life, death, and resurrection will turn, has turned, and is continuing to turn that world upside down. Thank you.